Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. It is late Wednesday evening. I needed to record these today because I'm having a giant tree taken down and there's just nothing but chainsaws and loud noise for the next couple of days. So I figured, even though I'm a little tired, I definitely like doing these and I never like to miss. So let me just flip on the camera, see what questions we got, and I'm sure there's going to be less than other weeks. But hey, maybe it'll just give me a chance to ramble even more than I usually do. Kidding, I'm going to try to dial that back. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, Raymond has a couple of questions, and first is a question about the analog pocket. They don't have it yet, but is it already possible to use a USB or Bluetooth keyboard on cores like the Amiga core? So I don't know. Uh, I believe that you would have to go to the GitHub repository of whoever ported that core over. I didn't realize the Amiga core was even ported over, but you would have to check that and then kind of see. I'm not sure if there's any official support for that because I don't know if any of the original analog cores would support it but i think i would just kind of check there and just for the record i don't own a pocket i borrowed that one and in fact most of the stuff that you've seen in a lot of these live streams or basically all of the stuff in that retro rgb what's in a box thing that i sometimes do on instagram none of that is mine it's just stuff that i'm lucky enough to be able to mess with and have passed through here so i i would love to just be able to take out a pocket and try this out myself, but I, I don't have one and I don't game on handhelds. I, I, I know it's weird, but I like the smallest phones and the biggest TVs. And I like to sit on a couch and enjoy this stuff with the only exception would be for the PC cores. And then I like to sit at a desk like a PC would. So pockets, not for me, but that doesn't mean it's not an amazing product. It's just not for me. Next Raymond has, I believe Raymond's talking about one of those, uh, five and a quarter inch, USB drives for their PC. So one of those things that goes in the same slot that your CD-ROM drive would go into, but it has something like a compact flash, SD reader, etc. And I remember those, I remember installing those a lot back in the day. I especially remember some of the ones that had the volume control right there. I remember installing those that had fan and LED lights control. And this is you know, early to mid 2000s. I actually don't like those LED lights at all anymore. So, but whatever, like uh, I, I remember back in the day, a lot of those, but I don't know what I would recommend today. For me personally, what I would do is go to Amazon, search for one that looks like it would fit, make sure it's from a seller that you could return it to and then try it out and see if it works for you. But do anybody have any recommendations for that? And Raymond, was that exactly what you were talking about or was it um or did i kind of get that wrong but anyway um yeah hopefully i get your questions right and also i'm not could you correct me on how i'm supposed to pronounce your your name because is it raymond is it ramon uh i i just don't know and i'm the worst at pronouncing and i never mean to get anybody's name wrong i i just i'm terrible at it Next up, Andrew Fiore was able to track down the very same CRT bar top arcade that I used in my mini MVS and Mr. Cade videos. They run into the same geometry issues that I explained, so they wanted to ask if there was ever a satisfying solution reached by replacing any board components. No, and I replaced quite a lot, and I had the help of much smarter people than me looking over my shoulder as I did it, 
And what we really just determined was if this was super important to me, I should just get a different chassis. Just And by chassis, I mean the circuit board that connects to the CRT. I still don't know why they call it a chassis. Maybe somebody could explain it to me. It's probably something completely obvious that I've heard before and it just never clicked. But that the two solutions that I found, that uh, JAMA adapter that I used that, that centers it, that was awesome. That really got it 90 to 95% fixed. And I just, I thought that worked great. And I was very happy with the solution, but it wasn't a hundred percent fixed. Now for me personally, I just decided that that's part of a CRT arcade experience. There's always going to be some kind of weirdness. However, I also own some RGB monitors and I am able to get a little bit more of a perfectionist look from those. So if this was your only CRT gaming experience, I would look at the exact model number of the tube and try to find a compatible chassis. And if not, you could look at the um, at the, the yoke in the back and the, the connector that goes on and basically just go to arcade forums and see if you could find anybody else that would have a chassis that fits it. And then you should be able to do all the extra stuff that you need to. With those cheap arcade machines, who knows if the chassis was even meant to be used with those CRTs. It probably was one of those things where it's like, eh, it doesn't really work, but it kind of does, but we'll give them to you at a super big discount. You know, probably was one of those situations. Um, also, a separate question. Digging in through old posts, they found one about an XY kit that converts CRTs into vector monitors. Do I know if there would be a way to drive multiple games to the monitor through Mr. RPI or Multicade? So I don't know anything about that other than I really want one. And I think the reason that I haven't gone crazy to find one yet is because I'm kind of waiting for other cores like Tempest or Star Wars Arcade or something, other vector monitor cores to be available on Mr. And then I think I'll, I'll just kind of dive ahead first into that because I, I think vector monitors are amazing. Now, the thing that you have to remember is those conversion kits are tedious to install and not easy. So you basically are planning on like a weekend of very boring, very tedious work in order to make that happen. So I'm not trying to tell you not to do it. I just definitely want to be upfront and honest about, you know, setting expectations and stuff like that. But for, for me personally, I mean, the dream would be to have some kind of CRT where you could power it off and then switch between vector and regular. But I would also just like one of those kits done and, and installed into something. So I don't really know the answer of any of those questions, but hopefully anybody in the chat could jump in and maybe we could kind of figure this out. And if anybody has one of those converted CRTs that wants to sell it, let me know. Maybe we could kind of work something out. Tim the Gamer 23 wants to know what my current physical game and console collection looks like. Well, I recently did a room tour video that shows almost all of it, uh, so I'll leave a link to that if you're interested. But what I didn't go through was all of the boxes in these different rolling racks that contain all of the stuff that I use when I do my testing, stuff for each console. So maybe if you wanted, I could do a live stream where we just, you know, one of those like really laid back, set up a camera, angle down at the table behind me, crack a beer and just go through every box and just kind of kind of see what's in them. I really wish there was some kind of auction plugin for YouTube where I could be going through this stuff and be like, oh, hey, I don't need this anymore. I haven't used this in years. Anybody want one of these? And, and kind of just go from there. But um, I guess that, that doesn't exist, which kind of sucks. Next, what are my goals for this whole collection? Well, I unfortunately need to sell quite a bit of it to pay for bills and a whole bunch of other crazy stuff going on in my life. But my goals are to thin it out 
so that I keep everything that I absolutely need to do my job, retro RGB, as well as stuff that's really important to me. And it's kind of funny because a lot of the stuff that's super important to me is basically worthless. It's just stuff that I really like to have and always want to know it's there. Even if I only use it once a year, you know, whatever, I'm kind of glad I have it. And on the flip side, there's some stuff that I, I use for retro RGB and some of it's very expensive, but I really need to hold on to it because it kind of gives me all of the extra tools that I need to really do a good job doing these deep analysis of different stuff. And so, yeah, that's kind of a, a balance with that. And I, I've been lucky so far that I've been selling off a bunch of stuff and whenever I needed it, I've just kind of been borrowing it from friends. And sometimes it's annoying. Sometimes it's like, hey, dude, can I drive over to your house and borrow your Xbox again, even though I just gave it back to you two weeks ago? Like that, that I'm sure is going to get on my friend's nerves a little bit. But on the flip side, there's some good stuff, too. Like a new mod for a console comes out that I really want to cover and review and dig into, but I really wouldn't use. So then I could just kind of put the feelers out and say, hey, who wants to do this mod? You know, I'll just I'll, I'll get it you know, I'll get you to skip the line and I'll get you through to some of the best modders. You still have to pay for it, but I'll, I'll make sure to get everything that I can. I'll do the review and I'll, I'll ship it directly to you on my own dime. And that kind of has been working well because everybody sort of wins. Friends and, and people I trust can kind of get these things that they need and they don't have to worry about, you know, how to do the mod or, or where to get it. Or in, on the flip side, I get to do these awesome reviews. For free essentially just whatever it costs me to pack and ship it so that's kind of that's kind of my current plans for it and lastly have i taken any steps to make sure it's protected um electrically absolutely mechanically definitely those uh, well i mean the the projector screens covering it right now but the racks that i'm using back there are rated for thousands of pounds each which is weird because the ones on the side feel a little wobbly and flimsy but i double triple and quadruple checked and unless i walk up to it and start shaking it they're physically protected and the the wire wheel racks don't have you know, like everything's in boxes in those so while it should be far under the weight limit that that's it, still something that i, I try to make sure that i, I kind of Make sure everything's protected that way. And of course, you know, fire alarms, fire extinguisher, surge protectors. So, you know, nothing would happen if the lightning gets struck or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically the extent of it. Hopefully I kind of painted a fun picture of uh, what it's like in this family room slash office slash whatever. Next up, Tony Escobar tried to order that cheap Saturn component composite cable that I recommended, but unfortunately they've been sold out for a couple of weeks. Do I have any alternatives or other recommendations for this cable? And I have some guesses, but this is like a moral versus practical issue here. So I think that this cable is the same exact one that's made in a factory in China in bulk and that every one that you've ever seen that looks like this is the same. I total guess. I have zero proof of this, but I just think this comes from one distributor and then it kind of gets sent out to Amazon stores, AliExpress stores, and that's it. And I, the problem I have is I don't like to link to stuff that I haven't bought and tested. And if a seller changes something after the fact, that's life. I have no control over other people's businesses. But I don't want to leave a link to something that I can't look you in the eye and say, I tested this and I think it's okay. Or I think it's meh, but you might still want to buy it because well, whatever, right? And so that kind of just brings up a, 
like a, a conundrum as to how do I make money off of this then if I'm being so picky after uh, as to what I recommend because I probably should change the link inside this post to one that just lands at an Amazon search for these cables and you can choose whichever seller you want. But what if there really are multiple versions of this? Or what if one seller is carrying the same as everybody else, but the, the way they pack them, everything gets destroyed and it's just... I don't know. I, that doesn't sit well with me. You know, I really just like to make sure that I'm trying to do the right thing, which is probably why I'm always freaking broke. So it's my own fault right there. But what I would suggest, though, is that take that gamble, especially for the price, right? Take that gamble and just say, say to yourself, okay, I'm going to buy from an Amazon store uh, that that definitely offers returns. I'm going to try it out. And if it's all funky, then I could return it. But maybe just Go to RetroRGB.com, click on Support Us, scroll down and click on the Amazon General link, and maybe even copy that uh, question mark tag equals code afterwards and stick that right in front of the cable that you buy. So you get the same cable at the same price, but I still get that one penny of the sale. And hey, if it stinks and you return it, none of us get anything, but at least you didn't lose any money. You just lost a tiny bit of time. But if you do get the sale, or if you do get it and it does seem to work for you, then hey, you know, maybe we kind of both win, which is, I know, an annoying ask, right? Because, like, let's be honest, if you're listening to this while you're jogging or, you know, in your commute and you're like, all right, let me just add this to my Amazon cart real quick so that I don't forget, you know, you don't want to take the time to go through all that crap. So I know that's a big ask, but if uh, if you have the ability and the time to support like that, that's what really keeps these reviews and stuff going. It's just, you know, the, the ability to post stuff with affiliate links. But, you know, this is probably going to be the downfall of, of me and Retro RGB is just doing stuff that I think is doing doing the right thing versus doing what makes me money. But, you know, I'd rather go back to doing... Uh, you know, private corporate development work and uh, then then sell out, to be honest with you. And I, I loved the private corporate development work, by the way. I think that was some of the coolest stuff I've ever, ever done. But I also absolutely love working with the amazing people in the retro gaming community and having fun stuff like this. So I'm going to keep going as long as I can here. But yeah, thank you for asking the question. Uh, but I don't I just don't want to recommend anything unless I've tested it. So, hey, give it roll the dice, try another one from Amazon. And hopefully it is the exact same one. Belmont recently took an ESP32 Bluetooth dev board that they flashed with Blue Retro and then soldered it to an N64 controller extension cable in order to make it a Bluetooth dongle. Everything works great in conjunction with their original N64, SCART cable, and EverDrive, but they're wondering if it's pulling too much power or potentially damaging their system. Are they just better off being safe and getting one of those little dongles that have, uh, that we just did the write-up on? There, I think multiple stores are selling them, Castlevania, 8-bit mods, and stuff like that. So that is an excellent question, and I do not know the answer to that. What I do know is that stuff like that wouldn't be sold, you know, 8-bit mods wouldn't be making and selling something like that unless they did power testing. Um, I, I just... I seriously doubt they wouldn't have they wouldn't have gone through all the checks to make sure that everything's cool with that. So I guess I would just check if, if you could find some specs as to how much power that dev kit pulls. Is there a lot of stuff on there which might potentially draw more power? Can that be powered by a separate 5 volt connector if you're very paranoid about that, which I mean that in a nice way, obviously. And I guess I would just make the decision yourself. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, there's also aesthetics with it as well. While I think what you did is freaking awesome and I love hearing nerd stories like that 
do you just want a cool little dongle that plugs into your N64 that you don't have to worry about? Or do you like having this thing that you built in Flash that if you really wanted to, you could Frankenstein it and, you know, build it into something else where you could use it with multiple consoles or something like that? To, to be honest, it's got to be up to you. I would just kind of check the specs on absolutely everything and see. Uh, and, you know, kind of just go from there. Maybe also jump in the 8-Bit Mods Discord to see if they're selling any. But this is kind of one of those things that, for me, if it were a console that is still very cheap to purchase, they made a gazillion of them, I would probably take the risk. And I just would definitely make sure that the power supply was good. You know, the main one console to the wall. Uh, like, if you're using a, a console that could use the triads, I would grab one of those and grab one with extra amperage on it just in case. Just I know that's a little bit paranoia, but still, I would take I would do that. But if this is something like, is this a fully recapped CDX unit that's been perfect with the original power supply? Now, I, I would want to be very careful about that because I wouldn't be able to replace it if it broke. So totally up to you. But I just, it's a very cool project and it's fun to hear that you did it. Oliver Clara said they're straight up stealing ideas from my surround setup as their computer is also on the opposite wall from their main TV setup. So that's awesome. Uh, I do want to just pause real quick. and I know I'm, an, I'm probably annoying when I say this all the time, but when it comes to that setup here, I genuinely love it for this room today in this setup. And I, I do think it's good equipment, but audio is so subjective. And I'm sure many of you, especially many of you that have spent thousands and thousands on your surround setup would listen and go, nice try, buddy. Mine's better. That's totally fine. And I think people, respectfully, if your hearing isn't that good, you might sit down and go, this sounds exactly like my sound bar, which I strongly disagree there, but that doesn't matter. That's up to you. So before we even continue, I just wanted to make the point. I'm never trying to say, you know, only only buy my audio stuff that I, I use. I just try to, I like the theory behind what I do because you could apply that to the cheapest budget or the most expensive budget. That's the stuff I like to really get across. But anyway, enough of that. Oliver's question here. So from front the front left and right, they also have the same pair of Ascend Acoustics and they're using it with the CRT. They have a few questions about the rear portion of the setup. They watched the video a bunch of times and their understanding is that only one source, either the AVR or audio interface device connected to the computer can be connected to the Yamaha MSP5 MSP5 studio monitor rear speakers. Yes. So I uh, the way those work, even though there are multiple inputs in these, it says right in the instruction manual many times you could only connect one at a time. And if I wasn't weird with OCD, I would probably just use the the quarter inch jacks in the back. But I wanted the XLR jacks to use with for a balanced input for my Motu M4. And I don't know if I could tell the difference at all, not even a little bit. But I like knowing it's there just in case. So then I had to get the XLR switch box and then the ground loop isolator, because for some reason when I started going through a switch box, I had the ground loop problem. And it still all seems totally fine, but you know that's just one of those things that you're really going to have to decide for yourself what's the best option for you. And I'd love to hear people's thoughts on, would I ever in a realistic scenario hear the difference between quarter inch jacks coming out of the Motu M4 into these very nice Yamahas versus the balanced output? Or would I really need to spend not 250 on the inter interface, but a thousand and not 
you know, five, six hundred bucks in the speakers, but two thousand. Like, is that really one of those things where I wouldn't notice the difference unless I got super good equipment and still had the ears to be able to hear them? Which I think I do, by the way. I think my hearing is oddly still perfect, even after the million metal shows I've been to. So I, I don't really know. I just my approach to this was I do audio mixing here on all of my videos on this setup, and I still pretend like I'm a musician and I haven't recorded in quite a, quite a long time. But if I ever do get back into that, I just want to know that if I hear any, especially if I hear any interference, I want to make sure it's not my setup. I want to make sure it's something else because I've chased ghosts before. Uh, that's a story for another time. Anyway, um, for Oliver to recreate this, the next step would be to find out if their AVR has RCA line level outputs. Run that cable to an RCA to XLR adapter and run that to the XLR switch box, which is exactly what I did then presumably that switch box is sending an XLR run directly to the speakers. Yes, the only thing that you need to note is when you do that conversion, the quarter inch jacks that you've now converted to XLR, or if it's quarter inch or RCA, I think I just ran RCA, it's not quarter inch, but they're gonna be a lot quieter. Uh, I can't really remember why, Bernie explained it to me a while back, but the way I just get around that is I turned up the Yamaha monitors pretty high. And it, there's no interference, there's no buzz, I don't hear anything like that. And then I just turned my PC volume down, and then I, I ran the calibration that way. So it, it totally compensated for it. So the studio monitors are, you know, it used to be when I first got them, they were only at like a quarter of the way up. And now they're at little, you know, probably one o'clock if you're looking at the dial, you know. So that was it. That's all I had to worry about, and it seems fine. Um... Next, in the video, I mentioned I was running unbalanced through balanced, but uh, yeah, sorry, I'm just going through. I think I answered your questions before I even got to them, but um, let me just kind of skim through this again. So also, they noticed something plugged into the uh, combination sockets on the front of the Motu M4. Is this the output from the computer? Yes, that's this mic right here, and that's going into input number one. My guitar, when I use it, goes into input number two, so if I ever very embarrassingly want to sing and play guitar at the same time, I could still do that. I could pull off background vocals in metal, but I would never call myself a singer, by the way. Uh, but I also use input one for the Rode, uh, Rode Pod Go, the wireless Go. Uh, I have another adapter that sends that to XLR. So when I do the live streams, I have the wireless lapel mic on, and that now allows me to walk around the room thanks to a very generous donation from somebody who sent that. Um, so yeah, that, that's basically it. Um, also, the understanding is that you normally wouldn't use an RCA line level connection to hook up an AVR to a set of speakers. Instead, running cables from the AVR's dedicated speaker terminals to the five-way binding posts on the back of the speakers via banana plugs. Yes, but. Um, first and foremost, audio files will tell you that all of your speakers should match, and you should not mix and match like mine. I have better luck doing it this way. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure I did hear a difference when they all matched, but I, I already ranted about that in those videos. I'll skip it. But what you... I think the difference is that I need these powered speakers in order to use this Motu M4 in the way that I'm using it. So if you wanted to, you could, you could technically, if this was the sound that you were going for, just for the record, these are studio monitors, so don't, don't buy a whole bunch of these for surround. But let's just say you found a good self-powered speaker that you loved the sound, you could theoretically 
put all of them as your entire setup, left, right, center, rears, everything, and then run the RCA outs from most amps that would support that. And then you just don't really use the amp portion of your amp. You use the decoding and, you know, and the routing. And when you turn the volume up, it'll still change the volume. You just never change the volume knob on any of these speakers. You'll set it to 12 o'clock or something. So it's not that I... It's not that using RCA is wrong or right. It's just simply that since these speakers are self-powered, that's how I wanted to do it. And it worked out with this setup because my amp only had a limited amount of powered outputs. So exactly what you said, banana plugs into a speaker. And just the fact that I ended up having powered speakers for two of them means that it freed up the last two outputs for the ceiling speakers that I showed in the video. So it kind of worked out uh, in my setup for that, but it's one of those things where you just, as long as you understand how everything's working, then it, it doesn't really matter. It's just one of those things where everything has to be taken into consideration. Now, my strong opinion for this setup here, these two back speakers coming out of studio monitors that are flat, they're not exciting at all, they're meant for mixing, doesn't matter. I'm sure if all of my speakers were higher end and matched that I would hear a difference, but most of the sounds come out of the fronts. So having these studio monitors that are definitely not supposed to be used the way I'm using them, you know, supposed to be used, uh, it's totally fine for me. So that's kind of, um, you know, that's kind of a different way about it uh, that I, I kind of liked. But all right, more from Oliver. Uh, they couldn't get a price, a good price on the Yamahas for their rears, so they were looking at the M-Audio BX5 5-inch powered studio reference monitors. These are magnetically shielded, and they also have XLR inputs. So same thing that I just talked about, as long as you don't mind the sound, the studio monitors are flat, should be totally fine. Um, also, the same thing, you don't connect them via the normal speaker terminals because then you would have speaker level, not line level going to it. Last question, they were looking into a Go XLR or Go XLR Mini for the computer's audio interface. They checked the inputs and it doesn't quite have the same balanced audio outputs as the Motu. Um, so that's gotta be up to you on which one of those that you choose. Your audio interface should, should really be chosen for what your main use case is going to be. And depending on your use case, it might be cheaper to buy two, which I know it sounds ridiculous, but let's say, you know, I use the M4 because that's also an MD4EA approved device. So I use it for, for these videos recording, for music recording, for just listening to my PC audio, for doing recordings, for MD4EA analysis, or for video capture like that. This is like everything that I need in one interface, except digital inputs. That's my only complaint. There's no digitals, but you might actually be able to get cheaper stuff by using two. So maybe you have a motherboard that has perfectly good sound output, maybe not as good as an external interface, but totally good for what you're using. You just use the line out of that and then just get a small XLR input, like a Focusrite Solo or something like that for your microphone input. So you got to choose your audio interface based on what you use it for. And for me, the M4, did everything for a price that was much cheaper than buying it all individually, but it's really got to be up to you. So uh, I love doing these audio talks. I think I probably talked 
too long on this one, which is why I always timestamp. If, uh, if you don't want to hear audio discussions, just skip to the next. But yeah, I mean, I think this is a decent setup. I just think you got to double and triple check that if your needs are the same, and if they are, then hey, grab the same stuff. But if not, maybe kind of reroute it however, however it fits your setup best. Couple of questions from Lily Larceny. First, pull out my favorite beer and tell me what I really think. So I don't have any beers near me. Actually, I'm just doing a mini Gatorade Zero today. But uh, my favorite beers for a very long time have been Smittix and Negro Modelo. And while I love all different kinds of beers from all over the world, except really hoppy hipster beer. Sorry, hipsters, your beer sucks. So do your super tight skinny jeans. But I love all different types. I love trying them. I even love experiencing beers that I know I'll probably never have again. But it's, you know, it's just... I like what I like and I know it's kind of like a you know more of a basic simple beer not something expensive or fancy but I'm not expensive or fancy so maybe that's just kind of a good fit but yeah those are those are really my go-tos and I try to always change it up too because I don't want to get too used to them because I like I like it when I crack open that beer like when I was on the live stream the other day it was the first time I had a Smittix in a while and I was just like oh yeah like you know so I, I don't know those are definitely my favorites um, also, Lily brings up a very good point that, you know, a lot of people here have console collections where their consoles and their games total thousands into the tens of thousands, even depending on if you have rare stuff worth a lot of money. But a lot of people bitch and moan about spending 300 bucks on the RetroTank 5X. So that's a little weird uh, if, if you're somebody that spent that much money on your collection. And it's especially weird when people regularly drop two to four grand on a pc with a fancy gpu in it so why not have a retro scaler that's super expensive that can even handle modern consoles that does all of that and i kind of have two opinions on this i think opinion number one i do think it would sell i don't think it would sell a lot but i i do think it's something that people would kind of learn to appreciate if they had the ability to see what it could really do and how it would differ from just plugging stuff into your TV. And some TVs scale images nicely, others don't. But I think the problem here is that you need to market the ever-living shit out of something like that to the exact crowd that you're aiming for. And I think the best example of this was a million years ago, I used to go to an expo and present at an expo called Cedia, which was home automation stuff. And there was a couple of times that other companies new, been in the industry forever, whatever, had amazing products that were the best at the show, but everybody was buying the company brand who rented out half of the hall and put a giant circular banner that basically took up most of the hall with their name on it and sent a blimp across and, you know, uh, funded a massive, expensive, fancy party for everybody to go to. And that was the brand that everybody was buying and using for their installations. And I think they were even getting um, a higher margin or something like that. And that's kind of why for a long time, high-end audio, video, home automation, all of that stuff was so expensive because you paid the extra. But that's also what got this through to people that our product will do what you want, even though other products are already out there that do it, that, you know, their marketing really got you. So I think if you're going to spend to, or if somebody's going to sell a product that's, let's say, 2500 bucks for a crazy 4K 120 scaler that can do retro and modern, 
would actually really need to be like a $3,500 product because you'd need to spend that extra money getting it to getting it to people, getting getting the word out that something like that exists, you know, and really creating and, and staying on top of the narrative. Like, you know, I would never spend that money on a scaler. Fine. Product's not for you. But, you know, hey, person with like 10 grand worth of consoles, modern and retro, like, isn't this just the perfect thing to hook to, up to your, you know, $4,000 TV that you just bought? So I think that's I think that's why you're not going to see it. I don't think anybody in retro is going to drop that much money on development, that much time to get it done. And when at the end of the day, most people are going to say, I can just plug the RetroTank 5X into my TV or the upcoming RetroTank 4K whenever that comes out. So it's one of those things where I get both sides and I do wish it was an option for some people. I just don't think, I don't think a lot of people out there understand what it really takes to to make a scaler like that. And if they did, I think they'd probably go for something that they could sell more of because it's less of a risk. But I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I hope we see some crazy shit in the next couple of years. Next up, Kyle said they've been thinking about upgrading to a 4K TV this year, and they're wondering if there were any considerations they should have for retro games. Most of their retro gaming is through Mr. or upscaled with the RetroTank 2X Pro. Can they reasonably expect most 4K TVs to support at least 480p, any brands they should stick to? So I have, I do have one strong opinion about buying TVs, and you don't have to agree with this. I'm sure there's a bunch of reasons why people might not agree with this. But my, my advice that I always give to people is if you're going to buy a new TV, buy the very cheapest one that's out there that's, that checks all your boxes and save a ton of money or go out and get that crazy OLED model that you've always wanted and spend the money on it. And the reason is because over a lot of years of testing TVs, I just made a comment about my days going to Cedia. I've been doing like getting into demo rooms, checking out TVs since I saw, I mean, since SED TVs were launched, I was at that launch party. You know, hats off to you if you even know what the heck that is. It was a canceled platform and everything like that. But I've been doing this for a while. And while when I switched to doing retro RGB full time, I haven't gotten to CES. I haven't gotten to see any of these demos and I wish I kept my contacts so I could have nudged some of these TV manufacturers to do a better job with gaming. But, you know, point is, I haven't seen a lot of mid-grade TVs that justified the price. There's always exceptions to that rule, by the way. There's always super sales too, but many, many years in a row, I've seen a $300 TV that wasn't really much worse than a $900 TV. But then you step into like, you know, OLEDs, where which are fairly cheap now compared to what they used to be. They're not cheap, but comparatively speaking, when you go from that $900,000 TV to a $2,000 OLED, assuming all the settings are set correctly, and it's like, holy crap. I mean, it's noticeable. Whereas that $300 one to the $900,000 one, it's like, yeah, I mean, sort of looks the same, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But so that's just my general advice. Get the cheapest one out there, do some research for all of them. Make sure the latency is low. There's a couple of really great review sites like Artings is good, but there's also that uh, that YouTube channel. I'll leave a link. I always forget the person's name who runs it, but he's awesome. The channel's great. I got to leave a link to that as well. But just do a little bit of research before you do it. But unfortunately, when it comes to retro, we're kind of on our own. 
And there are absolutely TVs where the sharpness isn't just creating a halo ringing effect over things. Shockingly enough, you actually could get a pretty sharp picture. So some of them you can put a 480p signal into and adjust the sharpness setting and it'll be fine. But some TVs, doesn't matter if they're the $300 one or the $3,000 one, some TVs just suck at scaling 480p. They should all accept it, all of them, because that's part of the HDMI standard. But it's really one of those things where you're going to kind of have to decide your budget first. Do you want to pick up one of those $300 TVs? Awesome. Grab it. Just double check that there has a game mode with low latency and use your Mr. Directly in. Use your RetroTINK 2X and I'm sure it'll be fine. But do you have the budget to pick up a really awesome OLED? Is that something that's important to you? Then if so, buy that first and then kind of go from there because the better the TV, the more stuff that you notice too. So maybe you're going to plug in your mister and go, that's perfect. I love it. And then plug in the RetroTINK 2X and go, uh, it's time to upgrade to the 5X. So totally up to you. I just kind of wanted to add some perspective. And uh, I don't know. I love TVs and I love display technology and I love tweaking this stuff. But I, And also, am I wrong? Have things changed? Are there mid-grade TVs that are really worth the money that offer a lot more than the cheaper ones? I haven't seen it yet, but I also haven't been going to all of the expos like I used to back in the day. So if I'm wrong, please let me know. I'll apologize like always, but I still to this day haven't really seen a huge difference between low-end and mid-range versus mid-range to high-end. Retro Gaming Boombox recently wanted to add another device to their GSCART switch and realized they don't have any other open inputs on it. They were all used. So they saw I did a live stream of that uh, that 10 input SCART switch, but are there any inexpensive ones that just have two or three inputs? I've seen two to ones that are, are routed well. They're manual push button. They're not, uh, they're not auto switches. So you, that is something that you could potentially pick up. Uh, you could also get retro gaming cables. Rob's one that I reviewed as well that seems to be totally fine, but that's also a manual push button switch. But the same company that makes the 10 by three that I reviewed makes a six by one. Now, the one thing that really didn't sit well with me after that whole live stream and testing was that I got a lot of messages from people that said they own that same switch and they like it, but it was different than mine. Theirs didn't have left and right swapped. Theirs did pass composite video. So I'm losing trust that if I review something like that, it's going to be what you get. So I would say to be safe, if you're looking into doing something like this, check out that same company's six by one auto switch. Now, you're going to have to do a lot of checking because maybe if you get that, it's always, it's got an always on output. So the GSCART switch, if you daisy chain, it would always think that, you know, would always default to that port because it's always on. So you might have to use that switch as the last one. There, there's some risks, but they're not very expensive. And if you do six by one, they're aren't any circuitry in there that would try to amplify the signal. So just, you know, use your most basic cables on there. Don't put anything weird in there, just standard C-Sync cables or sync on Luma or something like that and daisy chain them together. And that should be good enough. Um, you know, remember of course too, that you have to unplug one of those things to, in order to add the daisy chain. So you're going to need at least two. So in the six by one, you, now you have four open ports. So that's kind of cool for if you ever expand, but yeah, that that's definitely something that you could think about. And you could also try finding any other cheap manual push button switches and just 
put your least favorite consoles in that one in case there's any interference. All right, a quick question for all of you awesome people. Hopefully some creators listening might be able to help. How can I add the same type of timestamps to audio-only podcasts that I do on YouTube? Now, I'm asking because sometimes, especially days like today when there aren't too many questions, I like to ramble on about stuff. I loved having the audio surround sound discussion. I loved reminiscing about Cedia days, but not everybody wants to hear that crap. And I totally understand. And if you're watching on YouTube, you could just you know, quickly grab the description and then click the button and switch to the next section and you're totally done. But I think if you're listening on audio only podcasts, you have to just hit fast forward a bunch of times and look up the exact all right, next sections at 1023. So press the button. Is there any way to do that in podcasts? And I, I use Anchor and I do know that Anchor supports things like if I wanted to link, send an email link to you to this exact part of the podcast, I could do so. But is there a way to do that in the description the same way I do with YouTube videos? Can I just kind of go in and make it so that if somebody clicks on the next section, it'll automatically go to it? Because if I'm taking the time to to chapter all of these, as long as it's not too much more work and I don't have to go through and manually script every week, I'd love to be able to do that because I just I love having these conversations, but not everybody wants to hear every answer. So I just want to make it easier to skip through crap that you don't care about. And at the same time, you know, maybe those some of those long ranty stuff that I talk about are are what you're here for. So if you don't care about any of the rest, you could skip directly to that very easily. So anybody that has the ability to help with that, please let me know. But anyway, as always, thank you to everybody who participates in these. And especially thank you to anybody who supports on any of the monthly platforms, because it is you who is keeping all of this stuff going. Any supporters, ask any question at all that you'd like. Just please do so in the latest Q&A post, wherever it is that you support. Because the way these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, I just like to kind of do it in real time like I did today and have a fun conversation with you all. So anyway, thank you all very much, and I'll see you next week.